Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning. And yes, there is a pre-K and summer Sunday school this morning. Um, if you are new and visiting us and have not uh, sent your kids there, we would encourage you to go out there yourself uh, to introduce yourself to the teachers, make sure they get the information they need to properly care for your kid. Um, but we are glad you are here. If you are visiting, if you are new, uh, we would love to meet you at our welcome station and have you fill out a connecting card. Um, but we are glad you are here. And, and this morning we are starting a new series that is going to take us through the summer. And this, this series is called Israel's Playlist. And, and we're calling it, and you can see that in our graphics and, and the stuff on the stage, we're calling it that because we're looking at the Psalms. And we're looking at the Psalms, and I think the imagery of a playlist helps us look well at the Psalms. And Rolling Stone, the magazine, every, not the band, every few years puts out a list of the top greatest albums of all time. And there are some albums that consistently make that list. Uh, the, the, the Beatles routinely have at least two or three on that list, and they always have Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Consistently also on that list is Pink Floyd's The Wall and Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. Occasionally, a new album will crack that top, but it's getting to be more and more rare. The most recent one I could find is Beyonce's Lemonade from 2016. That's kind of the most recent one that's cracked their top, top 50. And I was thinking about that and kind of pondering it and doing some research, and I realized there's really two reasons why that's true. First of all, for an album to be considered great, it needs to stand the test of time. An album that's brand new, while very popular, hasn't proven that. So that's part of it. There's a delay. There's always a delay before it can really be determined to be great. Secondly, it dawned on me that I think part of the reason is about 2004, 2005, things like Pandora and Spotify and iTunes really started to take off. And all of a sudden, these things allowed us to, instead of, you know, it used to be if you wanted to hear the new hit song by whoever, fill in the blank, your artist of choice, you had to go and find that. You know, I remember, I remember in sixth grade buying the first, and this will date me, cassette tape album of the band that I had just, I'd heard this song on the radio and I wanted, I had to go buy the whole cassette tape. And maybe you're of a generation where you remember hearing it on the radio and you maybe hit record on your own cassette tape and started making a mixtape. But really with the, the playlist came the ability to grab songs and, and I don't have to buy the whole album anymore. I can just grab one song off of it that I like, and then I can put it in a playlist. And next to it, I can put an, a completely different song that doesn't even connect to it. You know, and, and I'm a playlist fan. I have a lot of playlists. Uh, we have a house cleaning playlist that we play when we are cleaning our house. I have a workout playlist that I listen to when I'm on my bike. I have a hockey playlist that I listen to when I play hockey. I'm really creative in my, my playlist namings. I do have one that's labeled fun with a PH, you know, just throwing that out there, fun music. Um, but we can put these, and, and I have some playlists that are really, really bizarre. Because you can put songs that don't relate to each other right next to each other. You can have a song by Chance the Rapper next to a song by Bob Dylan next to a song by Weird Al Yankovic. And there's no rule saying you can't. That's how a playlist works. And, and I bring all of that up, and I, I share that because I think that's kind of 
in some ways, a great image for the book of Psalms. We could look at Psalms and say, no, no, the Psalms is more like, like a hymn book, and in some ways it is, but our, our, our hymn books, if you remember them, um, still had them in some semblance of an order, in a pattern. You'd find the Christmas hymns next to other Christmas hymns, and you'd find ones on God's forgiveness next to ones on God's forgiveness. And you'd find a system and an order, and in Psalms, we don't have a ton of that. We don't have like artists grouped together. All of David's psalms aren't together. We have anonymous psalms. We have psalms that tell us what music to play with it when we're singing it, which some of that is lost to history. We don't know what those tunes were. We have some that specify what instruments to play, and we have some that tell us when they wrote them and why, but we have others that are completely anonymous and have no bearing. And we can have a lament psalm next to a worship joy psalm. And so it's hard to find that common thread that ties it together aside from the fact that they're psalms. And, and, and that's all we have. And so where does that come from? Where does the title come from? The word psalms comes from the Greek word psalmos, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word mizmor, which means praise, but that isn't even the name the Hebrews had for the book. And so we have this name that means worship or praise, and that's kind of always what it's been, um, but we, that's, that's kind of what unifies it. What unifies it is God. What unifies it, what makes it different than my workout playlist or my hockey playlist is the idea that God is the focus in every single one of them. Whether we're lamenting or praising or celebrating or assenting to worship, God is the focus. And so as we look through this playlist, let that be the guiding thread of what ties these together this summer. And we're going to be in this all summer, and one of the benefits of that is when you read the Psalms, you'll find a Psalm bumping up next to another Psalm, Um, and sometimes you'll find Psalms next to each other that don't necessarily feel like they belong together, but I think God can speak through that. But we have the ability as you go to the cabin or as you go camping or as you, to step out and step back in. And, and so enjoy the summer in the Psalms. And I would encourage you this summer to take some time reading the Psalms. Read some of those Psalms you know really well. But put next to it a Psalm maybe you don't know so well and see what God might be saying. Put, put like, it always fascinates me that Psalm 117, this is some useless trivia for you. Psalm 117 is the shortest Psalm. It's also the shortest chapter in the Bible at two verses. So if you ever want to claim you memorized an entire chapter of the Bible, pick that one two verses, and you're done. You go two chapters over, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible, two chapters later. Maybe work on both of those together. You know, read Psalm 117 one day and then read Psalm 119 the next four days, right? But take that time. Get in the psalm. See what God is speaking to you through the psalms. And so this morning, this morning we are going to look at Psalm 32, But we know that as we look at the Psalms, we do know that it is the word of God. And as one commentator put it, the book of Psalms is first and foremost God's word to his people. And so we need to hear it as such. We need to hear the Psalms even at times when we don't understand. Psalms, when they they can be confusing because they're poetry and and they can be confusing because we don't know what the focus is and we don't know what the heart is. But there are also times that I know that it speaks to our soul in a deep and significant way. And so hear it as God's word to you as his people. And remember what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let the Psalms equip you for God's work. When you're in that spot where you need encouragement, let the Psalms encourage you. When you're in that spot where you need joy, let the Psalms bring you joy. When you're in that spot where you are frustrated, there are Psalms that will speak to that frustration and guide us back to our creator, to God. Let the Psalms speak to you this summer and let them correct and train us in righteousness and prepare us. And so our goal this summer is to step into the playlist, to engage with the Psalms in a new way, to let them speak to us where we stand. And so wherever you are this morning, this morning and this summer, I would encourage you to engage with us in Israel's playlist. And so we're going to start with Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, we do have a little bit of background information. It is titled. Uh, we know it was written by David. And we know that it was a maskil, which I know means a lot to the people in this room, just like it meant to me before I looked up what the word meant. What is a maskil? It's a word of wisdom. So we, we read that it's a masculine, and we know that, that David in this psalm is going to be giving us some wisdom, right? He's going to be giving, and so we need to hear that this morning. What is the wisdom of this psalm? And the first thing that he lays out is the blessing of forgiveness. And, and it is summer, and it is Minnesota, and that means a lot of us are going to take, like I said, opportunities to go to uh, camping or go up to the cabin. And I know that there's going to be a few people uh, that are going to look online at some point this summer and they're going to see somebody else who's at the cabin and they're going to see their feet in the water or in the sand in like an Instagram post or a Snapchat. And they're going to go, you know, live in the life, you know, and take that picture. And then some of those people are going to put a hashtag on it, hashtag blessed. And I'm not being critical of saying that's blessed. That is a blessing to be able to do that. But we're going to see that. And I, I want to talk about real blessing. Because while it is blessed to be able to be home and visit family or to, to go and visit the cabin or to get in a lake this summer, that is a blessing. Don't confuse that with the blessing that David is talking about here when he talks about the blessing of forgiveness. He is talking about a blessing that surpasses our current situation. A blessing that moves beyond the, the positive moment to being a full blessing that lasts when life doesn't make sense. To be a blessing that lasts when we don't feel like everything is going our way. The blessing of forgiveness is true blessing. And so when he talks about the blessed life, he's not talking about the hashtag kind. And he says in verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And the start assumption to this is that to be blessed is to be forgiven, and I would, I would argue that to be forgiven is to require, is, is, requires that we know that we have something to be forgiven for. I can't be forgiven if I don't think I have anything to be forgiven of. If I think I don't need to be forgiven, I can't live this out. The transgression starts with the assumption that the author knows their own sin. We need to know our own sin to live that blessed life. To find that blessing of forgiveness requires we honestly own up to our own sin. For me to stand there and acknowledge that there have been times where I've been angry, that there have been times that I've been arrogant, that there have been times that I've been um, lustful, that there have been times that I've done all of these things is how I start to live into that forgiveness, to know that there's something that I need to be forgiven of. 
to find that blessing of forgiveness. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of the ungrateful servant. And if you know this story, there, there's a servant who, who owes a great deal, and, and the Bible throws out a sum, and, and that's a number that, that doesn't necessarily mean something to us, but to the people at the time, they would understand that as a large sum of money, so large that if you were a servant and you worked your entire life, you had no hope of paying that off. You had a completely insurmountable debt. And this servant comes before the king who's trying to, to reconcile his accounts. And he says, hey, you owe me this vast sum of money. And he, he falls on his knees and he begs and pleads. And he says, I can't repay it. And the king, out of the goodness of his heart, forgives him of this. And says, you know what? Wipe it clean. Go in peace. And in that moment, the servant walks out. And he finds somebody else who owes him a small sum of money. And we're not talking about the, the sum of money you borrow from somebody to, to buy lunch at work because you forgot your wallet. A little bit larger than that, but significantly smaller. Maybe some, imagine somebody who had a hard time making rent and this person helped him with rent. A significantly smaller sum. And he finds that person, he says, hey, give me that money. When that person goes, hey, I don't have it quite yet. I'm still working on it. He says, there's no grace for you. And he throws him into debtor's prison until you repay that back. In Matthew 18, we, we find out that the, the master, the king, hears this story. And then the master called that first servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And so what is living out the blessing of forgiveness? It's, it's knowing that we are forgiven a huge insurmountable debt from our God and turning around and giving that forgiveness on. Living that forgiveness out that when somebody wrongs me, I look at how much God has forgiven of me and I can live in that blessing by passing on that forgiveness to others. To live out the blessing of forgiveness is to let it fully permeate us to the point that we understand the debt that has been repaid us so that we can enjoy forgive those who wrong us. Instead, oftentimes we live in the same shame as that first servant, that same shame and humiliation of our debt, and we turn around and try and, and, and punish somebody who has wronged us because of the shame and the guilt we feel. And we want them to feel rotten as well. And that's not the blessing of forgiveness that David is talking about. And in our psalm, David uses in verse 2 the Hebrew word for imputed righteousness. And imputed righteousness is this idea that God's righteousness is put on us. We don't deserve it, but it is put on us. It has been assigned to us. We have that blessed life of forgiveness we just have to choose to live in it. We have the ability to live in that blessing of being, forgiveness, of being forgiven, and this is the true hashtag blessed life. To have that forgiveness and know it and let it permeate who we are. And in contrast to this blessing, as a lot of wisdom gives the contrast, David paints a stark picture of the weight of silence and unrepentance. In contrast to the blessed life of forgiveness is the weight of silence. 
And remember who we're talking about. This is David. David knows a thing or two about sin. David has committed adultery. David has committed murder. David has been an absent father. David is not innocent. He is fully aware of sin. He knows a thing or two about it. He has the ability to speak to it. And look at how he talks about when he tried to hide his sin from God. Verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And today it's going to be hot and humid and some of us are going to be outside at baseball games or grad parties or on our deck. We know the heat of summer and the ability it has to sap us of our strength. And that's the image we have here of the the weight of silence when we have sin in our life and we refuse to do anything with us. With that sin, it can weigh on us like a burden, like an oppressive, hot summer day. We see the suffering of unrepentance. And we all know that when when we have that thing in our life, when we've said that little lie and we're concerned that somebody might find it out, how stressful that can become over time. The little lie in the moment seems like the easy way out, but the little lie has to be covered up with another lie, which has to be covered up with another lie, which has to be covered up with another lie. And then we stand there hoping that people don't figure it out. And all of a sudden, trying to keep track of what we said and what is reality becomes really hard, and that weight of silence becomes oppressive. It becomes burdensome. And, and, and while sin can lead to earthly consequences, not all suffering is because of sin. We see that in the book of Job, but there is this idea in the psalm that whether we're suffering on earth physically or whether we're suffering spiritually, that sin causes a dissonance, a separation between us and God. And we know that that sin can become burdensome, even if everything in our life is going well, that sin becomes burdensome in our, in our relationship with God because it separates us from who he is. And separation from God is painful if we are a believer. If we know what right standing with God is, as soon as sin damages that, that hurts. And we see that, we know that because we look at Jesus when he's on the cross and the true pain of the cross is not just the physical pain, it's that separation from God, which is why he cries out in true agony in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that separation from God is painful. And our sin builds that wall of separation up. With God. And the psalmist goes on and says, so, so how do we get back? Because there's this cycle in our life. We see the cycle in scripture of we're, we're in a good spot. We're living in the blessing of forgiveness. And then a sin comes into our life and disrupts that. And we want to get back to that right standing. We want to get back to being in good position with God. But we feel this burden. And we want to know what do we do? And the psalmist addresses that. He steps right back in. The freedom of repentance. We sin, we try to hide it, we find ourselves at our end. We need to repent again. We need to come back to the cross. We need to come back to our Savior. We need to come back to that blessing of forgiveness by repentance. Verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And there's a play on words going on here. Uh, and he's, he's talking about, it's, it, it's almost a joke of like, I tried to cover up my sin. 
And, and you think of like, like a little kid trying to cover up a mistake they made. You know, they, 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 they know they've done wrong and they go and they crawl into bed and they pull the covers over thinking mom and dad won't see the giant lump in the middle of the bed. God, I'm trying to cover up my sin. But once I confess it, only God can truly cover it and the, and the image there is of the sacrifice being poured over the altar to completely erase it and wash it away. I try and cover it up, but God, you completely erase it. Only you can truly cover up my sin. And, and the image here we also get is of the scapegoat in the Old Testament. We've talked in Hebrews about the Day of Atonement, that one day a year where they would go into the temple and they would make a sacrifice and they would pour the blood over the altar to cover up the sin. But they would also go outside and they would take another goat and they'd put their hands on the goat and say, you as the scapegoat carry our shame and carry our guilt and they would drive that out into the wilderness. And the psalmist is pointing out here that God can do both. Not only does he cover up our sin, but he covers up that shame and guilt. We no longer need to live in that shame-filled, guilt-ridden feeling. There may still be consequences for our actions, but we don't have to have that shame. We are forgiven. That is what repentance is. And so let me ask you, where do you need to live in that freedom? Where is that spot where you've looked at yourself and you said, God, I can repent of this, but you can't love me? God, where... You know, where do we need to step into that freedom to say, no, God takes away the guilt and the shame. When we confess, when we repent, not only does he cover the sin, but he takes away, he drives away the guilt and the shame. We stand as a new person, back to that imputed righteousness, his righteousness put on us. We stand before God free. So where do we need to live into that? Where is a spot where you don't think you are worthy that you need to push into that, to find that freedom of repentance, the freedom not only from our sin, but the freedom from guilt and shame. Live it out. We are called to be free, so we must no longer live as slaves to to sin. Instead, we need to know that we live in the safety of God's presence. And this is tying back into the blessing. This is the true blessing. The safety of God's presence, knowing that no matter where we go, we are with God, and therefore we are in good hands. And while everything around us might be falling apart, we are in God's presence, and therefore we are safe. And this isn't just talking about financial safety or protection from harm or safety from disaster. This safety comes from knowing that no matter what we face in this world, we can turn to God. Verses 6 and 7, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of, the deliver- of deliverance. And what the psalmist is focusing on is the safety of a clear conscience. Again, not the literal safety that, God, I don't have to worry about you know, a, a low bank account. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about uh, an illness I have because you're going to fix those things, but I don't have to worry about them because I'm with you. I have a clear conscience. I'm safe because I'm with you that even if the bank loan defaults, even if the illness gets worse, even if whatever I face doesn't turn out the way I want, I'm safe because I'm with you. That is, that is what the psalmist is talking about. Not that God will always fix everything the way we want, but that we are safe. We have a clear conscience. And we use the phrase with 
with little babies sleeping like a baby, which I think is a terrible analogy. Babies don't sleep good. I've had them. They're up every two hours. And they're up every two hours like clockwork early on. They scream. They, they make messes. Why do we call it sleeping like a baby? Like, if I have a horrible night's sleep, I should come and tell you that I slept like a baby. But we don't, because we're not referencing actually how they slept. We're talking about when they do finally fall asleep, they're sleeping completely with a clear conscience. They don't suffer from lack of sleep due to anxiety. They don't suffer from lack of sleep uh, due to the stress of the, the workload or their school or that relationship dynamic. That's what we mean by sleeping like a baby. We should have that freedom to sleep like a baby, to sleep with a clear conscience because we know we are in God's presence. And while all that out there might be falling apart, we have the presence of God with us and therefore we can sleep like a baby. And we know what a clear conscience feels like. We've all been in a car when I shared last week about being pulled over and, and going, I knew I was innocent. We also know those times where we've been speeding or no, knew we were not innocent and we saw the lights behind us. We respond entirely differently in that moment. The heart starts pounding, the palms start sweating. You know, we're trying to figure out how do we, how do I, you know, maybe there's a way I can get out of this. We know what a clear conscience feels like. But we have that standing of innocence with Christ if we have his forgiveness for our sins. We have the safety of being in his presence. When we have Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which should allow us to respond like Paul did in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I want to note that he says that at the end of the chapter, but look where he starts the chapter. He starts with, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He starts the same place the psalmist does. Hey, if we have Jesus, we are safe in God's presence. And then he goes on and goes, I consider that our present suffering, so he's still experiencing it, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We have this future glory to look forward to. And then he says in response to this, what shall we say if God is for us, who can be against us? Not a promise that everything will go well, but a promise that God is there with us no matter what. Paul affirms what Psalm 32 has already said. If we stand forgiven, we have no need for shame and guilt. If we have no shame and guilt, we are blessed even when life is hard and we face challenges. And those challenges remind us that God is with us. And if God is with us, we have nothing to fear because we have his presence. And so if David and Paul are in full agreement with each other, we see them and and we can see in both of them broken sinners. Both of them were murderers. Both of them were sinners. And they found forgiveness and God, and so they share with us the wisdom of experience. And that's kind of where our psalm ends with this wisdom of experience, because we are all like David, we are all like Paul, we are broken sinners, and as one theologian put it, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And so we listen to the wisdom of others, of other believers, And we hear them telling, this is where I found God in this moment. This is where God encouraged me when when things were falling apart. This is where I knew I still had God's presence even though things weren't going well. 
And so we hear from one beggar in Paul in his letter to the Romans relating a message of bread. And we hear that same message in David in verses 8 through 11 of our psalm. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright and in heart. And we know that at times David was like the mule. After he sinned with Bathsheba and after he killed Uriah the Hittite, we know that Nathan had to come and confront him before he confessed. We know David speaks from experience in the same way we know Paul speaks from experience that he had to have a bright light shine in his face on the road to Damascus. There are going to be times where we respond like the mule and forgiveness is still there, but he is saying, blessed is the one who isn't like that. Blessed are the times where we can acknowledge our sin early and move back into that safety of God's presence. Where we can step back and say, God, I have, I have once again let sin get between you and me and I need to confess it again and God, remind myself that I've always been in your presence. And God, that you are here with me. Our defiance to God only hurts ourselves. So listen to David and listen to Paul and learn from their words and find repentance this morning. And so today we're going to step into a time of communion, which I think is an appropriate thing to step into after we talk about forgiveness and repentance. Because we have this opportunity to approach the cross and remember the sacrifice Jesus did on that cross to bring us that forgiveness and to bring us that repentance. And so we're going to, I'm going to ask the servers to start making their way forward so we can start uh, doing communion here together. And as they come forward and as the worship team takes the stage I think it's appropriate for us to take some time to think through where are you at in this conversation this morning? Where is the spot where maybe you need to step into that freedom and go, God, I know you have forgiven me, but I I haven't been living that out. But maybe there's also a spot where you need to step back and say, God, I have some unconfessed sin. And God's word tells us to not enter into communion lightly. And that if we have an unconfessed sin, to deal with that first. So let me challenge you to do that as we step into communion this morning. And one last thing. We practice open communion here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church, meaning that this table is open to all who confess faith in Jesus Christ. If that is you, you are welcome to take communion with us, whether this is your first time here or you've been here your whole life. But if for some reason you feel that you cannot take communion this morning or you're not in that spot, please, I would encourage you, let the elements pass. There is no judgment. So we are going to take communion this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions for taking the Lord's Supper together, and we read this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And Lord, as we take your body, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. 
God, we thank you for sending your son to take on human flesh and to die a physical death on our behalf. And so we remember that through this part of communion, and we thank you for it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever we drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us take it together. And as we end communion this morning, let us end with the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, Lord's Prayer. Would you say it with me? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.